Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we're so thankful that You are our provider and our protector, and that Your grace is always sufficient. Now we commemorate that grace in giving, not from a sense of compulsion, but from a sense of great gratitude. And we do this to the King of kings and Lord of lords, even Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen. Well, good morning. This is a beautiful day, isn't it? I mean, take away the wind and the cold. <laughs> we are to always give thanks, aren't we? Um, first thing I want to do is give you the information of what is going to take place today. Uh, Beth Yashurin in Houston is giving, uh, I guess it's an event. It's called uh, a Day with Israel. There's going to be a um, special event there, and there's going to be several speakers, and it's going to begin at 6 o'clock. Doors open at 5, and um, it's going to last from 6 to 8. And we're going there. If you want to go, you can go on your own if you want to and just write down this address and the time. Or you can meet us. There's going to be some of us that are going to meet at the church, and we're going to just carpool. And we're at, uh, <laughs> it's going to be at uh, uh, 345 is when we're pulling out. 345. That will get us probably at that church around, uh, I would say, 515, something like that. And I expect it's going to be a huge crowd. Now, the reason they're doing this is to support Israel. We're not going there to convert to Judaism. And this is a way, the, the whole idea, you know how Israel is pressured from every quarter under tremendous pressure. And Amir Shalom, which is the Houston Consulate General for Israel, has put this together in order to show support. And that's what we want to do. We want to support the Jews and by our presence there. Now, if you get there, at, they say the doors open at 5, and there's going to be music. I suppose there's going to be some kind of orchestra there until 6 o'clock. And then the program is going to start. So if you want to be here and carpool with us, uh, be here by 3.45, and we'll be moving out. Okay? All right, let's prepare ourselves in our usual fashion. We'll have a few moments of silent prayer. The option to... Name privately to God the Father for any unconfessed sins which ensures the filling of the Holy Spirit. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have given us another day. That's all that we have. That's all we are to uh, look at in order to obey you, in order to fulfill your plan and be good and faithful servants. We thank you for this day. We pray that you will expand our horizon spiritually, that you will help us to focus so that we can drink in in full measure your mighty word this morning. For we pray it, in Christ's name, amen. Well, 
We're going to start Joshua 11 today. So you can go ahead and turn your Bibles there if you would like. Joshua chapter 11. But before we do, (laughs) before we actually start Joshua 11, I want to remind you one more time of what we've been focusing on in Joshua for a while because it's so important. That is a parallel between what was taking place when the Jews were taking over the land of Canaan and our spiritual life. Because there's a lot of parallels there. Uh, They were obedient to God. They were taking every city captive. And we as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ today in the church age fight a spiritual battle. And we are to take, according to 2 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 5, we are to take every thought captive in obedience to Christ. Because the ball game, the battle, is between your ears. It's in your soul. Specifically, it's in your cardia, your heart, dominant portion of your soul. And we are instructed in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 3 and 4, that we have divinely powerful weapons. That is, remember I said that divine dynamite? These things are available to us, and the purpose is to bring down satanic fortresses. Now, this is essentially what the uh, Israelites were doing in the land of Canaan in a physical sense, but we are to do it in a spiritual sense, and we don't fight against flesh and blood. We fight against spiritual ideas that would encroach, that would be false ideas, false doctrines that would encroach into our soul. So we have our old sin nature within us. We have the world and we have Satan and his hordes of demons all vying for our soul to get us off course. That's where the game is. I cannot emphasize that enough, but there is a direct parallel of what is going on or what was going on in Canaan when the Israelites were taking over city after city. That's what we do, thought after thought. It takes obedience. It takes trustworthiness, faithfulness. I might even say commitment on your part in order to be a good and faithful servant. It's not just going to happen. You have to realize what is really important in this life, and we have a physical representation of that in Joshua. However, we live in the church age, and our battles are spiritual. With that said, let's now look at Joshua chapter 11. Joshua chapter 11. We'll start with verse 1. Then it came about when Jabin king of Hazar heard of it that he sent to Jobab king of Madan and to the king of Shimron and to the king of Heard of what? What this is talking about, hearing of all the slaughter that took place. All the cities that had the audacity to go against the Lord's anointed, that would be the Israelites, His chosen people. They were being wiped out. And there were supernatural things going on that just shook their cage. They just were 
frightened. And so when this king of Hazar, and Hazar is the head of this confederation of city-states. It's the capital, as it was, the mover and the shaker. And so they decided we're going to have to amass together to have the strength and meet Israel out on the field. Now, you'll notice that that's different. Up to this point in chapter 1 through 10, all the battles that went forth, went on, the Canaanites were hiding behind their fortresses. But now they're going outside of their fortresses where they felt safe, which <laughs> they were not safe. They're thinking, we're going to amass such a large and huge army that we are going to obliterate this plague, these Israelites that have that have come in our land and are, are just uh, decimating us. That was the plan. And uh, much different than what they had before. And there's several things that I want to look at a little closer here. But one of the things I want to say before we go any further in the text is that from chapter 1 all the way to the last verse in chapter 10, uh, that whole time frame took probably about a year. So you have about ten chapters that cover approximately a year's time. Then in chapter 11, I think there's 23 verses, and in those 23 verses, we're going to have the, what we might call the northern campaign when the Israelites moved to the north and started taking cities there. And that's going to last somewhere between five or six years. So it's, it's compressed. One reason that's the case is because I guess God the Holy Spirit, if he just listed every city and every battle, it would be kind of like going through the genealogies. Uh, so-and-so begat so-and-so, and so-and-so begat so-and-so. These people who say, I've read the whole Bible. Every word? Yes. I always say, what do you think about the genealogy? Uh, <clears throat> I'm not going to doubt their word. But I doubt that people who say that they have read the entire Bible have read every genealogy. Now, there's a purpose for the genealogy is because God is demonstrating that his word is true and faithful. You, you can't just uh, abbreviate genealogy and keep someone out, or someone could say, well, uh, Jesus Christ really didn't uh, come from uh, the line of Judah, uh, or, or that really that isn't really uh, true mankind, Maybe some of those Nephilim uh, existed after uh, in Genesis 6 where we have the angels procreating with the women. Maybe some of those made it into the line of Christ. So we have the Bible giving us all the way from uh, Mary all the way back to Adam just for the genealogy. So one reason it's compressed is because it would might... We might skip through it because the same thing was happening over and over. Joshua would go to a city like, uh, remember Lachish? Lachish was on a high, it was the most elevated city. It had two huge walls around it. It took Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar a number of years later, months to be able to assault it and bring it down. Uh, Joshua did it in two days. So it was the same tactic because God was behind him. That's another reason why... This portion of Scripture is reduced. 23 verses is covered five or six years. But we're, we're going to look at something also is the fact that 
everything starts to be intensified. And we're going to look at that a little closer too. Because whenever Satan starts getting, getting concerned, the heat is turned up. The battle gets more intense. And that's certainly what was taking place in Canaan because Satan was getting worried. It looked like they were going to be successful in taking over the entire land and God was going to be faithful to his promise in giving this land to the Israelites. Okay, verse 2. And to the kings who were of the north in the hill country and in the Arabah south of Chinneroth, the Arabah is essentially the desert, and in the low land and on the heights of Dor and the west, to the Canaanites on the east and on the west, the Amorite and the Hittite and the Parasite, Parasite, I can't ever get that word. I always, they were parasites. And the Jebusite in the hill country and the Hivite at the foot of uh, Hermon in the land of Mizpah, uh, Mount Hermon. You've heard of that one before. And they came out, they and all their armies with them, as many people as the sand is on the seashore with very many horses and chariots. Now, that paints, paints a pretty grim picture, does it not? Uh, you have them coming out as the sand is on the sea. And they, the, the last part, did you notice in verse 4, it says, with very many horses and chariots. How many horses and chariots did Israel have? Well, they had zero chariots, and I don't know if they had a few horses, maybe, but we're going to see that these people had somewhere between ten and 20,000 horses. Uh, th this is not just a, a gangbanger brawl. This is a huge battle that they are preparing for. And so this reminds me somewhat of what this uh, king of Hazar was doing with what uh, King Saul did when he amassed his, his big armies in 1 Samuel chapter 11, verse 7, when he amassed the uh, armies of Israel. If, we don't have to go to uh, 1 Samuel chapter uh, 11, verse 7. Let me just give you the parallel that took place. There was this king that was a pagan king that came to Jabesh Gilead, which was uh, one of the Hebrew settlements there. And he surrounded the city, and he was going to take the city. And they tried to make peace with him. And he said, okay, I'll tell you what. I'll make peace with you, but this is what I will require for, for you to... You can lay down your weapons, and we won't hurt you. But what I require of everyone in the city is that you have to gouge out your right eye. Now, I'm not making this up. This is there. A pretty harsh king. By the way, Nahash in the Hebrew means snake. And he was a snake. And it's kind of odd because the people said, well, I'll tell you what, let's make a deal. Give us time to go out and see if we can get some help. And if we can't get help, then we will comply with what you say. And strangely enough, he said, okay. He gave them seven days. And so the word went out. And when King, well, he wasn't king yet, but when Saul heard of this, 
he was in the same shape, or the scenario was very similar. He had to amass all the Israelites together in order to go against this Nahash, King Nahash, in order to save them. And you know how he did it? He took an ox and he cut it in all these different parts. And he would send a piece of that ox out to all the different uh, tribes and cities of Israel. And he says, if you don't come and help save our brethren in Jabesh Gilead, then what happened to that ox is going to happen to you. I think that was a pretty uh, motivating, I don't, would you call it a letter? I guess you could say it was a very motivating piece of flesh. And he did. He, he, he gathered them all together and they went against Nahash and they did the deal. They, they uh, saved the people. So this was something that was similar that was going on here. Now one other thing we want to see before we uh, press on, and that is that something that was taking place there, the intensity... It was intensifying. We can relate even into our day because I believe that we are in what we would call the intensified stage of the angelic conflict. Things are coming to a culmination, it appears, somewhat rapidly. Now, I'm not a date setter, and I'm not going to say the rapture is going to happen uh, next month or even next year. But certainly a lot of things have come together that would demonstrate that that would be true, that it's that we are certainly in the intensified stage. One reason is because Israel is back in the land. That is huge. So, what's happening today, uh, us being in more of the intensified stage of the angelic conflict, we can see in the Scripture also, as things get, I might say, hotter or more intense, it's going to culminate the zenith of that is going to be during the tribulation period. Because the Bible says that's going to be the hardest time, the worst time there ever has been or will be. Because Satan knows he's, his time is very short and he's desperate. So things uh, intensify. Uh, a few things that we might note <clears throat> that would show that the things are hitting up in this world. One of them I gave you already is Israel is back in the land. And by the way, Israel is not going anywhere. Israel is not going to be conquered and dispersed again and then have to be regathered again and go back to Israel. We know that they have to be a nation. They have to be back in the land uh, because when the Antichrist comes on the scene, he is going to make a treaty with them. The reason we know that, Isaiah 11, 11, if you just want to jot that verse down, says that Israel is going to be regathered at the second advent when Christ comes for the second time. Clearly, that is the context. Now, if they are regathered in the land for the second time at the second advent, there's only one other time that they can be regathered. And that happened May 14, 1948. That means they can't be dispersed and come back. Isn't that interesting? Here they have about a zillion Arabs around them that want nothing more than to annihilate them, to push them into the sea, and yet here they stand. And they've, stand, they, they've stood there for, what, 60-something years? Uh, close to 70 years? And God near Israel. 
Item is one category. What is it that the Presbyterian Church, the best of all their uh, interest guards, there are Christian denominations that are vertical and straight or anti-Semitic. Seem to be this worldwide economic collapse. Worldwide famine is being or most seem to if and embracing false doctrine by the masses they are doing that, which also would demonstrate that we could be close. Immorality is rampant even among those professing to be Christians. All these things coming together and you look at that would relate to the, to the fact that we are in the intensified stage of the angelic conflict. Things are not going to get easier, folks. They're going to get harder. They're going to be much harder in some cases. Turn in your Bibles to 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1 through 5. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1 through 5. For here, Paul is writing to Timothy and explaining to him what things are going to be like in the last days. Second Timothy chapter 3 and verse 1. And while, I'm, while we read this, just think of how things are today and see if this is a parallel. But realize this, that in the last days, difficult times will come. For men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, I have to stop right there for a moment because I want to show you something. Lovers of money. Guess what this is? You kill these lights here, George? Black Friday. Look at that line. To me, this is a picture of what hell would be like. <laughs> just stick me in that line and I'm thinking I'm, I'm there. When people talk about hell on earth, that's what it is for me. Doesn't that look like fun? Of course I said that tongue-in-cheek. Look at that. These are of just the other day. I, I got off the Internet. I don't know if you can see, but there's one little red spot here. I can see the carpet. I thought, how can there be any spot where there isn't somebody? And I don't know if you can see it here, but there's one of those uh, velvet ropes right here. That's why there's not anybody right here. I think they're herding them in this way. They're coming around this way. And I don't know what's going on all over here. I like this one. This isn't just for the young people. Look at Granny. She, she's, I don't know who this, who, look how big this guy is. She's not, he's not moving fast enough and she's, looks like she's pushing him out of the way. Do you see why I put that up there now for you? To, to demonstrate the love of money. For some people it's not necessarily love of money, it's love of saving money. I don't know, maybe, uh, oh, I pushed the wrong thing. Uh, maybe some of you went out there and 
if that's if that's what you want to do, if you want to go two days before a star a store even opens, and miss Thanksgiving, and stay out in the cold and the rain and everything else, and uh, then be herded into a store so you can save $100 on something. If that's your cup of tea, then so be it. But I don't think that's normal. You know, it's all the hype. Hype is everything these days. I think if they had a big hype, let everyone go out and play on the freeway, you'd have people out there doing it because they think this is the thing that they cannot think critically or independently. It's all about being manipulated. So Joshua and the Israelites uh, were going to take over the land. Oh, I haven't finished this, have I? Let's go back to, or y'all might still be in Second Timothy chapter 3. Uh, For men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, lovers of saving money, boastful, arrogant, revilers. A reviler is someone who is verbally abusive that's a reviler disobedient to parents put a circle around that one that by the way is where it starts and i want to camp out on these so bad and expand on these Uh, i don't know but most people who have children these days maybe it's because they're afraid of the cps coming and taking their children or they're just doing what everybody else does there are very few parents who rear their children in the fear and admonition of the lord teaching them respect for authority that is an oddity something rare today and as a consequence if you don't have the children that learn Humility, when it is enforced in the home, then you wind up with society like ours. Disobedience to parents. Ungrateful. Unholy. Unloving. They don't have the capacity to love anyone but themselves. They only think of themselves. Irreconcilable. They're not interested in being reconciled. All they want is their way. Malicious gossips without self-control. You have all that, you're going to wind up having people who are brutal. No compassion, no thoughtfulness. Haters of good. Treacherous. That means it's conniving and and reckless. You know, reckless, sometimes I wonder how teenagers ever make it into adulthood. When I was a teenager, they used to have muscle cars. That's when they, no, we didn't even have seat belts. No air pollution control devices or anything. And those cars were powerful. If you lived during the 60s, I had a 1968 GTO, brand new, my first new car. Red, white top, had mag wheels. And recklessly, I just never thought it through. I thought that burning rubber and getting a car, a girl in the car with me and scaring her would make me look enduring in her eyes. <coughs> That's the way teenagers think. 
reckless. I don't know what they did back then. The teenagers would be reckless, but they figured something out. They couldn't even take their chariot ride uh, because they didn't have chariots. So I don't know what they did, but it's worse now. Reckless. Conceited. Lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. I see the news and I see... <clears throat> now, it seems to be a, a, a normal thing that when they're giving the news, before it ends, they say, well, this movie is brought in so many millions or billions or however much they have, and it beat so-and-so out like some... Who cares about what movie beat out some other movie? None of them, or very few, are worth watching anyway. And yet this is the enterprise that interests people. I wonder what would happen if they ended with a verse. Oh, we, we can't have that. Separation of church and state. You know, you go through the whole number. Puts people to sleep. Pleasure. How many people are in churches today because they want to be entertained? If you went to... I don't know what percentage, most churches today, and you started teaching verse by verse, and you only had a couple of hymns that took maybe 10 minutes, instead of this, what do they have, what do they call it now, the new uh, progressive services? What do they call those? Y'all remember? Contem yeah, contemporary uh, service. Well, they just, it looked like a bunch of chanting going on in there. Praise the Lord, oh yeah, praise the Lord. And it goes on and on and on. And while that's going on, the people are, milling, oh man, I'm spiritual, look at me, woo! And then you get to a pastor that gets up there and he teaches for maybe 10 or 15 minutes and by then they're already cutting their eyes to the door and they're wiggling around, they can't take any more of that. And they leave and they say, what a spiritual experience. Were you moved? Oh yeah, I was moved, brother. One thing they never asked, what did you learn? Oh, no. I forgot where I was. Let's see. Oh, <laughs> lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. We worship at the altar of pleasure today, don't we? I'm, when I say we, I'm not talking about this wonderful group here. We're talking about everybody else. <laughs> Holding to a form of godliness, a form. See, a lot of people out there, they can talk the talk, they can use the vocabulary, and they can go to church, and those are the ones who are holding a form of godliness. It looks like, oh, they're, they're spiritual giants. They, and when they talk about their service, did, did you see Sister Gloria? I thought she was going to come out of her seat. I think she really got the ghost. And that goes on and on. That's a form of godliness. It's not true godliness. You cannot be ignorant of God's Word and have true godliness. It's impossible. But to learn God's Word, you have to sit down, you have to concentrate on the ministry of the Holy Spirit to learn that spiritual information. And you have got to learn a spiritual vocabulary. Well, people don't want to learn a vocabulary. They don't even know the English language. Most of the young people today with noted exceptions here, have reduced the English language down to a few groans and grunts. Mm, uh, they could live out in the Stone Age somewhere. And that's why rap is in... They like rap. You know what I'm talking about, rap? Well, I like to rap, rap up and... 
Oh, they have denied its power. See, they don't have any power. It's all human. They are not using divine dynamite. It's all in the physical realm. They don't even know what the dynamic spiritual life of a church-age believer is. It's just a sham. It's a paper tiger. And look at this. this life, and avoid such men <coughs> as these. I was thinking about that on the way to church today. That very verse and that last phrase. And I thought, if you're going to avoid all those types of people today, who are you going to associate with? Huh? That doesn't leave many, does it? But let me tell you something, brethren. You don't need many. You need one or two good and faithful servants. In fact, the more people that are there, the harder it is for you to be a good and faithful servant. Joshua and the Israelites used violence to take over the land that the satanic forces had control for so long. And Jesus Christ used violence when he returns, or he will use violence when he returns to take over not just the land, but the entire earth. There's a lot of violence going on. Physical violence. But that's not what we are of. But we do engage in battle every single day. I hope that you do. And the battle that you engage in is spiritual. Spiritual. It's taking the things that you learn from God's Word and actually applying them to the circumstances of your life. That's what it's about. Verse 4. The enemy troops assemble. Josephus gives us some... He's a historian. Gives us... Uh, some figures with regards to this army. It totaled approximately 300,000 men. 300,000. Which be be equivalent today of about 25 or 30 infantry divisions. There are about 20,000 horses and 10,000 chariots. So... That is a tremendous army. About a quarter of a million men massed in the valley. Now, let me tell you why. uh, This thing about chariots. How many of you saw Ben-Hur? See Ben-Hur? Well, the chariots of that time would be kind of like the tanks of today. It was their armor, so to speak. And they would put, on Ben-Hur, remember how they used to put blades, how he put blades on the wheels of these chariots? And uh, it, it would just tear, tear up another chariot. Like, well, this is what they would do. They would put these blades on the wheels of these chariots, and just like 10,000 chariots. And here you had the infantry of Israel, and here they are amassed. Well, they could just charge Israel with those wheels turning with all these blades and just wipe out swaths of this infantry. And Israel didn't even have, they didn't have anything to counter that. They didn't have uh, any of these chariots and uh, horses. They didn't have cavalry, all that type of thing. So this would be a time that you might say, you would, as the British would say, you might have a spot of bother when you have 300,000 of the enemy. 20,000 chariots, 10,000 horses, and they all amassed 
And their one goal is to make you nothing but a memory. So it's estimated that Joshua was outnumbered about two to one, something like that. Verse 5. So all these kings, having agreed to meet, came and encamped together at the waters of Merom to fight against Israel. Now, this waters of Merom, it was a lake about four and a half miles long, three and a half miles wide, uh, with the Jordan River flowing through it. It's only about, uh, it was only about seven feet higher than the Mediterranean. So, you know, Israel, you have the Mediterranean, then you have all these high mountain ranges, and then it goes down to the lowest place, lowest level on earth, which, which is the Dead Sea. That's the typography of the, of the land. Okay, verse 6. Then the Lord said to Joshua, Do not be afraid because of them, for tomorrow, this time, I will, at this time, I will deliver all of them slain before Israel. And I'm sorry, I know we have some harsh lovers here. You might want to leave the room. He also says, You shall hamstring their horses and burn their chariots with fire. We'll get to that in a moment, but the thing that I want us to, to notice is that the Lord is always sensitive to our needs. It was at this point that Joshua needed reassurance. Wouldn't you agree? God is the same for us. We might not be facing 300,000 of the enemy. We not, might not have the chariots and everything else. But sometimes it seems like it, doesn't it? And, the, and God is compassionate, full of mercy and love. And He is there to reassure you. Now, He's not going to wake you up in the middle of the night and give you a vision. He's not going to talk to you verbally except through the Word of God. That's how He does it in the Holy Spirit. That is how He reassures us. Because He is loving. And that's what He does to Joshua. Now, look what he says to Joshua. Do not be afraid. How many times has he told Joshua that? How many times do we have to be reassured? You don't have to be afraid. The God of the universe is on your side. When you depend upon His promises, when you are depending upon Him, His help, His faithfulness, His trustworthiness, His Word, what is there to worry about? That's where the battle lies, folks is up here, is not to worry. That's what 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 3 through 5 is all about. You cannot go through life full of dread and worry and live the abundant life that God wants us to live. And He is reassuring Joshua here, and He's reassuring us. If the Israelites are outnumbered two to one, the other army, is, by the way, it's on their land. They know the topography. They have all of the benefits on their side. And yet God says, Joshua, don't sweat it. I will give you the victory. And when he says Joshua that, he's telling us that. I don't know what you're facing. I know that you have adversity, though. And you ought to look at that the same way that Joshua looked at 300,000 of the enemy. How in the world is this going to... How can we defeat them? God just says, trust me, and what's the other thing he tells us to do? There's a song about it. 
trust and obey. Most of us like the trusting more than we like the obey, don't we? Well, they go hand in hand. Okay. Uh, oh, the hamstring and the horses. Oh, yeah. Um, let's see. Do I have it here? Uh, what they did, when it says hamstrung, they burned. The, the, here, here's the reason that God instructed them to do that. is because he wasn't just thinking about that 300,000. He was thinking about future. If he burnt their main attack, which were the uh, chariots, what could they do? They could build more chariots. But when he burned the chariots and hamstrung the horses, now I was thinking that they, that they went out and they would tie their horses' legs together, you know, with a sharp little rope so that they couldn't walk. They would kind of, no, that's called hobbling. Isn't that what they call it? No. They would cut the tendon in the horses right above their heel here, or whatever you call that on a horse. And it, it permanently disabled them. And... I know you think, how, you know, why, you know, this is cruel. I can see annihilating the people, but these horses, listen, it has always been this way. Whenever you watch TV and our Civil War or whether it's the Indians or the whoever it is, have you ever noticed they're shooting? Sometimes they're even shooting cannon and the guys are falling off the horses and the horses seem like, oh, I'm fine. You know, they're just running right through. That is Hollywood. In truth, when you see some real paintings, when the Indians would, have, would attack the settlers and so forth, or when there were great armies clashing, the death rate of horses were maybe not 100%, but they were maimed and they, they, were, they were killed. The merciful thing was, would be to put them down. This is a war. There's no sentimental, sentimentality with regards to these animals. They had to do that in order to secure the future of Israel. In fact, the whole reason that these Canaanites had to be annihilated, and we'll get to that about the annihilation part. Some people are kind of queasy about that. Some people are more queasy about the horses than they are the Canaanites, and I can understand that. But this is an all-out war, and God has to do what is necessary to secure the future of His chosen people. And you know why? Because His Word is on the line. Every time that you claim a promise, His Word is on the line. He cannot fail. He cannot in any way uh, say, well, I don't want to do something that might be uncomfortable to someone, or should we say politically incorrect? Certainly that would be the, in, uh, the politically incorrect thing to do, would to, I don't know, 10,000 to 20,000 horses mutilate them this way, but it's part of God's plan. It was necessary. And when we get to these other verses where it says that he, they, Joshua was obedient in annihilating everything that breathed. And then in Hazar, with regards to Hazar, we're going to see that he burned it with fire. There was nothing left. It was obliterated. The reason was because Hazar was the capital. It was... Hazar was the one that formed this alliance to go against 
the Almighty God. And God is showing beyond a shadow of a doubt who's boss, who's in charge, and to protect his people. But I get ahead of myself. So we got past the horses and the chariots and the fire. I, I knew that was going to be a hard pill to swallow. Verse 7, So Joshua and all the people of war with him came upon them suddenly by the waters of Merim and attacked them. I think it's time to go to a map. Let's see. Maps are always important so you tell what's going on. I've got to get Granny off of here. Okay. Here is the southern... When they were engaged in the southern campaign, remember they crossed the river, Gilgal was their base, and then they marched from here all the way to Gibeon overnight, no water, no food, and then they chased them all out through here to Maqueda. The three kings went into the, to the caves, remember what happened to them, and uh, he- what happened at Hebron, and this is where they were. That's the southern campaign. Now, oh, I clicked the wrong button. Here we go. Okay, now... Here's what happened down here. Now they're moving up all the way up here to meet these, the enemy who have amassed against them. Notice, they didn't sit there and wait to be defeated. They are on the attack. Do you notice that? I want you to notice that. We as believers should not be in a defensive mode. We should be on the offensive. Now that doesn't mean that we have to get a sandwich board... I know the young people don't know what sandwich boards are. Uh, sandwich boards are when they used to have, a, I don't know if they made it out of wood or something. It, was, it would cover your hoe from chest down to your feet and would have straps and have the same thing on the back. It would have a sign on it. and would, People would walk around. The end is near. And you know, they would walk around, whatever it was. I don't think that, if you ever saw one, I've got a picture. I wish I had to put it up there. What I'm saying is we don't have to be the only offensive to walk downtown with a sign saying the end is near. That's not what it's talking about, being alert and being the offensive. Being on the offensive means that you are aggressively taking in God's Word every single day. You meditate on it, and then you apply it to your circumstances. That's what got Satan and his demons... Can I say panties in a bunch? I don't know. Uh, it's what got him all upset, and it, so it's now it's all intensifying. Same thing with us. This is how we're on the alert. We don't sit around and wait for the enemy. We go after the enemy. Uh, in a, if I have time, I'm going to tell you about the tactics that were used, and we have to use tactics also. And it's, it's never, for instance, when you're talking to an unbeliever, listen to this closely, there is an enemy out there. But the enemy is not the unbeliever. It's not the believer that has been in reversionism, long-term carnality. They are not the enemy. It is the satanic thought that they have adopted. It is the false doctrine that is the enemy. And we are to go after it aggressively. Not the people. It's what have... The, the lies that Satan has spun that they have embraced. That's the enemy. The people aren't the enemy. What are we to do with the enemy? Love them. 
Love them enough to tell them the truth. Okay, um, this is the northern kingdom. They go up there, uh, excuse me, the northern campaign. This is the Sea of Galilee here. It's called the Sea of uh, Kinnereth. That's what it was called then. But I want you to note something. Here's another map. Here's, this is where uh, they're going to start their march. He's going 60 to 70 miles. They're going to march up there to meet 300,000 of the enemy with chariots and horses. I don't know if it would take, what, three to three and a half days to do that, something, you know, if they, I don't know, if you go, could they go 20 miles a day? I don't know, 20 miles a day, it'd be three, three and a half. You try walking 20 miles a day with all of your gear and all you have, and that doesn't sound like much, but we get in our vehicle and we've been used in an hour. But walking in the way they did, and having to go see these mountains, all this high, they have a valley here, but all this is the high land, this green here. And the whole time they're going, you know, the only thing that they have to hang on to, they knew what they were going to face. You know what they had to hang on to? God's Word. He told Joshua, I will deliver them into your hand. And then you're going to burn all their chariots and you're going to uh, hobble their horses. That's the only thing they had to hang on to. How about you? So you can overthink when you're in this situation. Put yourself in their shoes for three, three and a half days. You're marching to an enemy that you know have a mass. You know that they have, they have weapons. They have tactics that you don't even know of. You, you can't even use them. And yet you're going and... Look, look at this also. As soon as Joshua got the word, God's word, what did he do? He moved out. He didn't sit around and form a committee and say... Uh, Let's think about this. Let's talk about this and see if this is the prudent and wise thing to do. No, he moved out. Now, there is a time that we need to move out. He got God's Word, and then he moved out. Same thing he did. Remember when he was up here? This is Gilgal. And then he went to Jericho. And when he got the Word, he moved out to the Gibeonites. He moved out that very night. We have got a lot of believers, you would think, that have lead bottoms. They don't move. They're not aggressive. They're not hungry. They do not have spudazzo. I love that word. And where do you find that? 2 Timothy 2.15. Remember? I love the uh, King James says, says, Study to show thyself approved. Study. Study and aggressiveness go hand in hand. How are you going to be prepared if you don't study? These people were prepared where it counts spiritually. Here's another, uh, here's another shot of it. Here is where they're going to engage here in Miram. And here they, they're moving up from Gilgal, and they have to go all this way up. 60 to 70 miles. Now, these this yellow lines are coming up here. This is where they came to clash with the Israelites there. So you have all... Look how far over here. Dor, and uh, this is Axphoth. I don't know who dreamed up these words, these names. Uh, over here in... Uh, in Ken, is that Ken, Kenda? And Hazar, all the, and they clashed right there. 
So it's going, and it took them five or six years. Now we're just reading it in just a little bit, but the word of God is too important for us just to have a quick glance at it and move on. Because I want you to be able to make application in your own life. That's why God gives us this. This is not just a history lesson. There are direct parallels that reflect in our life if we're just there to see them, but only in a spiritual sense here. Okay. Uh, wow. Woo. That's not good. That, but this is a shot. Of, I found this. I don't know if that's what it looked like, but this Miram, this little lake area there, looked like this. It had mountains a, a, above it and all. I'm not getting to the part. I, I get kind of testy when I, I don't get to the part that I'm really anxious to get to. Let's look at verse 7. So Joshua and all the people of war with him came upon them suddenly by the waters of Merim and attacked them. Now, if you had 300,000 in your army and you had all these chariots and you had all these horses, you wouldn't be all... I mean, they knew that the Israelites were a thorn in the flesh. But I don't think they were alert enough or else the Israelites couldn't come upon them suddenly. In other words, what I'm saying, I think they were arrogant and thought, who's going to attack a 300,000-man army with what all we have? And that is one of their weaknesses. Now, this is where I wanted to get to. Strategy and tactics. I'm just going to, I don't, I'm already past my time, but I just want to say, say this so I can set it up for next time. Joshua just didn't go from city to city and think, hmm, wonder what I'm going to do this time. He had strategy and tactics. He had a regimen. He knew exactly what he was going to do. And he was successful. And I relate that to our spiritual life. And what do we have today when we're fighting our spiritual battles? You know that most believers, and I'm not talking about unbelievers. I'm just talking about believers. Most believers have just about zero tactics and strategy when it comes to engage the battle in spiritual warfare. They don't even think about it. You know, ladies, before you go, our husbands, whoever does, when you go grocery shopping, don't you make a list? I mean, you don't go grocery shopping, just walk down the aisles and, hmm, I'll see what is, hits my fancy today. Oh, this looks pretty good. I'll take some of this. And you just go down and you... No! You know what you're lacking, you know, and you make a list. That's being prepared. That's strategy. Maybe you could call it tactics. Uh, young people. We have young people gone off to college. When they go off to college, do they say, uh, Dad, get in the car. Let's drive around. I'm going to see uh, what college I want to go to, see which one looks good. Is that the way they do it? But that's the way most people live their spiritual life. They think, oh, well, if I meet an unbeliever, I know John 3.16, that I'll have it covered. <laughs> How many believers are that way? By the way, have y'all noticed on your bulletin? Have y'all forgot the Scripture memory verses? I'm still trying to figure out a way that I can embarrass people who don't know these verses and still be in line. I hadn't figured that out yet. 
I don't have to. God will accomplish that. You can't go into the spiritual realm and not know any verses and think that you're going to be victorious. You can't go in there and not know the principles and the doctrines. If you don't know anything about dispensations other than you saw a timeline one time, what is that going to do? If you don't know about eschatology, if you don't know about soteriology, Christology, pneumatology, if you don't know all of these things, how can you be successful in the spiritual realm in a battle? You know, on Tuesdays and Thursday nights, we're studying the, 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 the title of the series is Getting the Gospel Right. But right now, we're in James chapter 2. Now, James chapter 2 is one of the most misunderstood parts of Scripture. And you can count on it. When you hear that, and you look out the door, and they're out there in the, in the, uh, riding a bicycle, and they have the tie on and the coat. When you see these cult members show up at your door, you can count on it. You tell them that it's faith alone and Christ alone. Where are they going? They're going to James chapter 2. Faith without works is dead. And we are, le- we are learning strategies. We know what they're going to do. So why not be ready? Why not have already preconceived ideas, these things that you have been trained in order to handle that? But people that, oh, no, well, I'll be filled with the Holy Spirit. Well, maybe you're filled with the Holy Spirit, but if you don't have any strategy, you don't have any tactics, you don't have any doctrine, they will tie you up in knots. You will be a spiritual casualty, and that's not what God wants. The Bible calls every one of us to have this formulated strategy when we are meeting the enemy. Well, I'm ten minutes over, so I guess I better stop. I'd ask everyone please to bow your heads and close your eyes. In a group this size, there may be someone here that is not a believer. Maybe they are not sure whether they're a believer or not. Maybe they're not sure what's going to happen when they cross this veil of tears even into eternity. The greatest news you will ever hear is that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, went to the cross. He paid for your sins, all of your sins. He died and was buried, but He rose again. No death could hold our Lord. And now He offers eternal life to anyone who will trust Him and Him alone to give eternal life on the basis of faith. Trust in Him. You can do it right now. You don't have to raise your hand. You don't have to walk an aisle. It's all done in your soul. In that moment that you trust in Christ, and not anything to do with your works. Faith alone in Christ. In that moment, you are born again. You become a royal family member. Your ticket to heaven is guaranteed, but we're still on earth. It's time to grow up. It's time to start learning how to do spiritual warfare. Father, we're so thankful for the book of Joshua. We're so thankful that you have given us these remedies that we have divine dynamite that you have made available to us. So we pray that you will help us to focus on these things, to learn the strategy and employ it so that we can be good and faithful servants. And we pray this in the name that is above all names, Jesus Christ, our only Savior. Amen.